listening to Cooper Talk. Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper, and remember him only as hip as my guest. I got to tell you something, people. I was, uh, my guest today, I was looking at this gentleman's resume. Well, first of all, he's, he's a director of not only TV, also films and stage. And I was looking at his IMDb, and I was just sitting there going, wow. I mean, sometimes, you know, you, you interview people. I interview a lot of character actors who have tons and tons of, of um, appearances and, and credits. And, and you look at my gentleman, and he has over 60 credits. And some of them are a lot of, a lot of shows. I mean, like, we'll get into it. But he's been playing his craft for over 40 years. And I just talked to him, and he, I think he has more energy than me. And my, <laughs> guest, my guest is Joel Zwick. How you doing, Joel? How you doing? And yes, I could have, I don't know how much energy you have, but I've been noted for energy. That's been one of my biggest selling points throughout my entire career. I was fast, I was efficient, and I had an enormous amount of energy. Now, do you ever, do you ever just, I mean, do you ever look back at your career and just think of how much TV you've been involved with? And if you think about it, from your later work to your earliest work, how many generations of people you have touched? I mean, do you ever encompass that? Do you ever take that into account? Every once in a while, I start to reflect. Remember, reflection only works if you're finished working. You can't reflect too much while you're doing because you're too busy doing. But I did, my phrase used to be that there were so many people who grew up on me that are grown-ups, that have children, that it's a bit scary because when I started out, the first big one I had was Laverne and Shirley for two years. There were, there's a whole generation of people who grew up on Laverne and Shirley who then grew up, had kids of their own, whose kids are now watching stuff that I do on, on the Disney Channel, like Shake It Up or any of those shows. So that does hit me every once in a while, but it never occurs to me. I don't really think too much about it uh, while doing it. I think I'm blessed that I got a chance to do it, and I was lucky that I hit the right time and place and actually were able to get a job working in TV because that was not a foregone conclusion. I was working in theater thinking I was doing almost pretty well. I mean, I was, I was directing, but nothing particularly major when one of my actors who was with me in my company in New York, the La Mama Plexus Company, which was an adjunct of the La Mama Theater Company in New York, he got a chance to go out to California to try his hand at acting and writing in sitcoms, working with Lowell Gans and Bob, and Bob Lou Mandel and those people on Laverne and Shirley. He had a running revolt on Laverne and Shirley. So I came up to visit him because I just had a break. And he decided it would be a good idea if I tried to direct a sitcom. But I'd never directed a sitcom before. But I was watching for a couple of weeks. And I finally decided, you've got to take shots in this industry. You can't turn down possibilities simply because you're afraid or you're not sure or anything like that. You've got to take your shot. So I went through the process of trying to get a job as a director of a sitcom. And at that time, it was busting loose. And Adam Arkin's uh, Stara from 1978. That it was, and that's what Greg Antonacci at that time was doing. So he took me to the producers. He took me to everybody. And everybody said, oh, sure, it's fine if the network will allow it, if the studio will allow it. So we set up a meeting with the studio. At that time, it was a lady named Judy Copage, who still is a representative, a manager today. And she was the head of programming for Paramount Studios in those days. And I remember going to that office, and all I said was a five-second speech. I said, listen, 
I've never directed a sitcom before, so I can't stand here and convince you that I can direct a sitcom. However, I've been watching for two weeks, and in my estimation, a retarded monkey can direct sitcoms. I said, <laughs> I said, my goodness gracious, the cameras aren't going to point at each other. The actors know their roles. They've been performing them forever. I mean, if I can just stay out of everybody's way and talk to writers and talk to actors, you ought to give me a shot. She looked at me, she said, excuse me for a second, got on the phone with a guy by the name of Tony Barr at CBS and said, I got this guy, I want him to direct an episode of Busting Loose. And that was it. And from that point on, I was in the right market at the right time, and I just kept rolling with it. Now, how did you end up directing theater at first? Like, what kind of kid were you? Were you a kid who just was fascinated by TV? Because you're an older gentleman. I know for me, yes. I'm, 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 you're 78, I believe. I'm, I'm 57. So you have 20 right. years of me. And I know there wasn't a lot of TV when I was growing up. So, I mean, how did this whole thing happen? Because it's fascinating. Well, first of all, uh, it was unique in that I don't remember having any goals. There were just no goals for a kid growing up in Sheepshead Bay, Brooklyn, lower middle class, uh, the goal was, as the parents said, is to get a college education and then hopefully become a doctor or a dentist or a lawyer. Or if really got bad, you'd have to be a CPA or something. But you'd have a career because that was very important to that first generation of uh, Americans that their children have education. So I followed that path. And I was a little bit of an entertainer. I could sing and I could dance and I can act. Nothing that was going to give me a career. That was for sure. But I could do all that. And eventually I got to college and I thought I'd be pre-med. And I started out pre-med. After my freshman year, it became apparent that I didn't have the grades to ever make it into a med school. So I demoted myself for my sophomore year to pre-dent. And I, <laughs> and I worked and I did that whole year taking physics and organic chemistry and all those complicated courses. And I, got, I was doing the same thing into the first half of my junior year when I got called into a meeting by my then organic chemistry professor and my physics professor. It was a meeting solely with me. And they got me there and they said, listen, we think you're a nice us, that you will never go into the stock course and get you out of it. So three weeks into the semester, I was then removed from both my physics and my organic chemistry courses, but they gave me passing grades. And I didn't, I followed their, uh, their rules and I never did go into the sciences. So I basically now was graduating. I had to, I had to do something. So I was sitting in mixed choir, mixed chorus next to this friend who told me that you ought to check out the theater department. I'm sure they could get you out in the three semesters you have left because in those days, you finished college in four years. You were not straggling on. You had to get out of that three-room apartment with a bedroom that you shared with your younger brother. You just had to get moving. So I took speech and theater. Interestingly enough, the guy who was sitting next to me who coached me in this thing turned out to be Dominic Chianese, Uncle Junior from The Sopranos. You know, it, real, real yeah. quick, a lot of people say I look like a young Uncle Junior. Yes you, yes, you do. Yes, you do, as a matter of fact. Yes, you do. But anyway, so Dominic was a good guy. Became still is a friend to this day. God bless him. He's now 86 or 87. I mean, good God. Still, still singing his folk songs and carrying on. But anyway, so I was now, I graduated in speech and theater, but that's no career. That's no goal. That's no job. That's just, I got out of college and did a few other jobs here and there. And then I had a friend. It's because I do believe it's all about connections. Connections, people connect you to people who connect you to people who connect you to people. And if you get enough right people, 
you got a shot at this whole thing. So anyway, I had a, a girlfriend in junior high school. I'm starting you right from the beginning of the first major contact that started this whole thing because that major contact was Carol King. Hello? But anyway, Carol, I sang with her in a group called the Cosines out of James Madison High School in the uh, in, in junior high school and in high school. We call ourselves the Cosines because we met in math class. And we sang doo-wop harmony, just like the tokens at, we're doing here and all these groups were emerging out of New York City during the beginning of the 50s, in the 54, 53, 55 years when rock and roll was starting to happen. But uh, Carol then introduced me to somebody when we got into uh, Madison High School named Roy Levine. Now, Roy Levine no longer is with us. We don't know quite how he died, but it's, it's questionable. But the point is that he was may have been the only genius we knew in high school. This guy, Roy Levine was so brilliant. He was an artist. He was a set designer. He was a director. He was an actor. But anyway, he was the original director of the 1967 McBird off-Broadway at the Village Gate during that entire maelstrom about uh, the, the white papers and the w w whitewashing of the Kennedy assassination. And basically, McBird told the story of uh, uh, Macbeth becomes McBird. And basically, it, the play said in no uncertain terms that uh, somebody, there was a, a, a plot to kill Kennedy. And it had involved, had to involve McBird, who was Lyndon Johnson. So it was a major political thing. But anyway, it was there that I met Andy Robinson. And you'll know the name Andy Robinson because he played the killer in Dirty Harry, the, the psycho nut. Okay, so I met him. And both of us were having real trouble in our lives at that point. Total loss of soul, because that was what the 60s were about. You, you, mostly you were just wandering as lost souls if you couldn't find some path that was direct. So basically, he started with a friend of his, a group at La Mama, which was called the La Mama Plexus. And he called me one day. I had now been uh, agoraphobic and hadn't left my house in four months. And Andy called me up to say he was joining this group at La Mama. Would I like to come along? I thought, well, I can't tell Andy I don't leave my house. That would be a terrible thing to do. I'm just going to have to um, bite the bullet and go with him to these exercises and see what that was all about. Well, as it turned out, the La Mama and the whole La Mama experience eventually set my course in life because Andy Robinson wrote a play called Last Chance Saloon, a wonderful play of the 1960s. And um, I, he wanted me to direct it. Now, he had never seen me direct anything, so I have no idea why it was he decided that I would be the right guy to direct this. But as it turned out, it was a pretty big success. It played the West End of England. It toured all through uh, Europe. And bingo, I was a director. Uh, and so I just kept directing the Plexus until we had one play which we're teaching. The Plexus group, I would say, was an actor training group. Our systems were based on the work of Jerzy Grotowski and Eugenio Barber, which was basically very heavy physicalized work for actors. So essentially you were training an actor like he was an athlete or she was an athlete, meaning to get them in the moment. Athletes, basketball players don't think what they're going to do in the moment. They have to find what they're going to do. And if they're not in the moment, they're in trouble. So I always felt the same thing about actors. If an actor can stay in the moment and 
not worry about their craft, about their lines, about their blocking. Let all that happen for you naturally. You've been trained to do that. That shouldn't leave you. What you need to have is that sense of immediacy, that you're there at the moment for the other actors, for the audience, for whatever happens. So that was the plexus work, and it did save my life, essentially, because this man who couldn't leave his apartment for four months was now doing forward rolls, handstands, back bends, huge <laughs> exercises, and basically and directing the plexus. So uh, one of the people we brought in when we taught, we taught at Yale School of Drama, Henry Winkler, one of my students, Joe Eikenberry, one of my students, Ken Howard, one of my students. The three of them were in my class up at Yale. And then we taught at Queens College. And we brought in from Queens College a couple of kids who were very, very talented to join the group in New York. And one of them was Greg Antonacci. Greg Antonacci just passed about a year ago. But essentially, Greg uh, wrote and was a very funny little Italian guy. And I mean little Italian guy. He was about five foot three, if he was anything. But essentially, he wrote this piece for the Plexus called Dance With Me. And Dance With Me, through incarnation after incarnation, eventually got itself onto Broadway, and it had over a year run, and I got nominated for a Tony. But not in directing, it's choreography. Because I, it was a choreographed show, but it was choreographing actors, which is decidedly different and choreographing dancers because I didn't have the skills or the no, the knowledge to choreograph dancers but I certainly had my own sense of it but bringing back to what you said what my only things that I could remember that were models for me were what I was watching I remember thinking that Milton Berle was hysterical I would watch Sid Caesar your show of shows Lucille Ball put me away Carol Burnett and the two clowns were just insane so my whole upbringing my whole slant on creativity was towards comedy strongly, very strongly towards comedy. Now, what yeah. was it like, you know, when you, as you said, you know, anyone could direct TV, but what was it like when you first stepped in front of the camera, well, behind the camera, to direct? Because, you know, you think about it, you know, I talk to actors who do TV and they do plays, and, and plays are, it's just grueling, and it's every night, and it's every very much so. And uh, rehearsal, rehearsal, rehearsal. What was it like when you just sat for the first time, were you like, this is cake. This is easier than I thought. That's exactly what I thought. When I was looking at this process, I was thinking to myself, this is not so difficult. It is basically a one-act play that would stage virtually the same way you would stage it for the theater, except you have to be sure that the cameras can shoot it. So there is a system that must be learned. And I'm a kind of a systems guy. I see systems. I look at the problems in systems. And then sometimes I come up with solutions to make the systems work more efficiently. And so I, I watched for two weeks and I thought, OK, I got this. I understand it. Obviously, the camera part scared me much more than staging actors in a little one act scene, because th these people knew their characters. We were not working brand new characters. The only new character would be the guy who came in through the front door selling pizza. And he had one line. <laughs> <laughs> and you really didn't have to worry about him. Somebody else cast him. Whatever he gave you, that's what you got. And basically, that was it. So uh, I just, there was, I turned out. So I, what happened, the first show, what I was really frightened about was camera blocking. I thought, boy, oh boy, what was camera blocking going to be like? Because I knew you had to get three cameras, and this one had to be the master, and this had to shoot one side, and that had to shoot the other side. And then it switches when, ca when characters move. So I memorized, memorized the entire camera blocking scenario for that first episode. Because one of the other things that I don't do is I don't use a script. 
to my knowledge, I don't know if there's any other director who does that. I decided up front that my job was to listen to the actors and respond to the actors. My job wasn't to look in a script to see if they're saying something right or wrong. I have script supervisors who can do that. So basically, I had nothing else to concentrate on but this camera blocking. And lucky for me, I had a camera coordinator named Phil Perez, one of the sweetest men going. And basically, I got through three out of six scenes camera blocking it when my mind turned into garbage it was just nothing was going through my brain at all i just looked up at phil and i said phil take it over (laughs) and he did and he blocked out the thing and i survived and then i started to learn the system when i realized that there might be a career in this you know that people lead to people lead to people you know so the the same people doing uh, Busting Loose with Adam Arkin turned out to be the same people who were producing Laverne and Shirley, you know. And so they started to think that I was a, a New York hotshot, which at that time was starting to mean something in the world of sitcom. They started to think that perhaps a person who directs theater might be very suitable to directing sitcom as, a pers- as opposed to somebody with major training in film who basically sees things as a shot by shot. They don't see things necessarily in a continuum and they tend to be much more um, vision oriented. Uh, Sitcom is not about vision. Uh, It is about just churning it out. Well, okay, with with like Laverne and Shirley, you directed like about 30, over 30 episodes. What was it, what is it like when you're directing a team? You know, you have those two and I know there must be sometimes... You know, we hate to say there's probably a little ego going on because who gets the funnier line and who does that? Because that's anything in life. If you're in entertainment, you have a competitive edge. That's just the way it is. How is it directing that kind of show? And then when you just have Lenny and Swiggy who would pop in and, and they'd always ah. get huge, they'd always get huge laughs. People, like guys were like, oh my God, you see Lenny and Swiggy. And they'd right. for them. Oh. <laughs> yeah. what, jokes, yes. what was it like no. getting what wrangling happened? all of them? Yeah, what happened was... Um, I, the, the girls, by this particular, I shouldn't call them the girls, I don't think it's appropriate, but Penny and Cindy, by this point, had teamed together. The first two seasons of Laverne and Shirley, which I was not on, they were battling each other like crazy, yes, about the fact that Cindy was very concerned about the fact that since the show was created and being run by her brother Gary Marshall and her father Tony Marshall was an executive producer, Cindy was starting to feel like all the best lines and the best storylines were going to Penny, and they had major problems about that. But come the third season, when I take over, the world of TV start to go through a major transformation but when uh, Suzanne Summers on three of a kind decided that she should have the same salary as the rest of the cast because she was the one that was carrying that show to stardom without her character uh, in that particular show so they start to sue the studios for equal pay and Penny and Cindy joined in because they were very upset they were number one in the country and they were making one half the salary that Henry Winkler and Ron Howard were making for doing Happy Days. So they started to strike against that. So my problem was not them fighting each other. My problem was there was no rehearsal time because the girls were constantly hiding away in their dressing rooms, refusing to work until somebody came down to speak to them. And then literally, we'd have to do a two o'clock run through. And at one o'clock, they'd find a side, they'd come on stage. And let me tell you, they took me to school. Penny Marshall especially 
she'd come in and she'd say, okay, my coat's here, my bag is there, I want a Pepsi in the refrigerator, I need my phone on the thing, and then she'd start the scene, and every place she crossed to was keyed by a joke line, and then she'd exit the door and finish it. So I learned that the system of props and the system of activity was what drove a scene because it's not character. Laverne was going to be Laverne. I wasn't going to change Laverne or uh, Shirley for that matter. But they liked me because I was energetic. I had a New York energy. Penny loved that because Penny was the Bronx. I'm Brooklyn. She was willing to give that up because that's usually not something you give up. You don't like the people from Bronx. But Gary was Bronx. You know, so basically, they kind of liked my energy. They thought, and basically, I got the job done. In one hour, we could put up the show and show it to the producers uh, an hour later, and they would give notes, and we'd go on with the show. But it became apparent that this was not a hard job, especially when the actors, when you do buddy comedy, Laverne and Shirley were buddy comedy. Uh, Lucy and Ethel were buddy comedy. I did buddy comedy with Bosom Buddies with Tom Hanks and Peter Scolari. And I did buddy comedy again with Perfect Strangers with Bronson Pinchot and Marklin Baker. And that's a whole other game because the team has to find its own humanity for itself. You know, you have to basically curb their excesses, which may get into the way of certain things happening. But essentially, it's their chemistry together. And it really made a difference. It does. When I was when I was casting Bosom Buddies, Tom was cast already, but the guy that was playing uh, the Peter Scolari role, he was horrible. He was one of these beach blanket bingo blonde pretty boys who uh, he could he didn't even know what was going on there. And literally the first day of rehearsal, I simply said to um, the producers, "You got to come down here. I'm putting something on its feet. I want you to see this." They came down and they realized this kid, and I don't remember his name, it's probably a good thing, couldn't do the job. <laughs> so at that particular big meeting with uh, ABC, Tom Werner at that time was running ABC. Uh, uh, and he he's thinking, well, we'll just pull the show, forget about it. And then I had an idea. I had done a series called On the Home Front, or Good Time Girls, Good Time Girls, and Peter Scolari was in that series. And I thought, oh, maybe Peter Scolari could team up nicely with Tom Hanks. So I said, how about Peter Scolari? And they said, well, I don't know. I said, listen, if I could get Peter Scolari to come in for one morning, I will put three scenes on its feet. Peter will have no promises of anything. You come in at one o'clock. I will show you these three scenes. And if you like what we're doing, just let us stay in production. And if you don't, you just cancel it and we're all bye-bye. They came in. Those two guys hit it off so well. They found they could breathe. They could Their breathing patterns were the same. And they found it so quickly that the three scenes I staged with them never got changed again. And we shot them as they were first created by those two guys. But, you know, it's their own vocabulary, their own belief in each other, their own understanding of who was going to be the straight man at certain points and who was going to be the clown. Certainly, Marklin Baker was the best straight man I've ever seen. He handled Bronson Pinchot, who is wonderful but a major lunatic, uh, so well. It was remarkable that, that Mark could just stay with it and ground scenes that had no business being grounded that should have flown off the, uh, the radar. But... Uh, so when you're working with buddy comedy, it's another, it's a whole other game because the team has got to be what sells it, not the specifics of other characters. The other characters fill in, you know. But uh, so yeah, so buddy buddy comedy became my forte because I enjoyed watching actors work. Ah, the story of why I enjoyed actors working. 
So at any rate, I got you to meet Bird with Roy Levine at the Village Gate. And I, because I'm friends with Roy Levine, got to be in McBird as an assistant stage manager, playing cronies and aides and silly people who'd walk on stage saying, Sire, your the thing is delivered. And uh, uh, while I was doing that, I was looking around me at the actors in that company, just to list a few of the actors from the original production of McBird. Started with Stacy Keach, Bill Devane, Rue McClanahan, Cleavon Little, just to be, these, and I'm looking at these people and I'm saying, oh shit, I'm in trouble. I don't know. I don't even know what acting is. Look at what these people can do. Every time I think there was an unmakeable moment, they'd rise to the occasion and make it. And I go, oh, I'm in trouble now. I can't act. I can't compete in that world. That's when I had my agoraphobic breakdown and hid away for four months thinking my whole life was over. I had no, nothing I could do in life until Andy Robinson, who I met at McBird, got me into La Mama. And La Mama got me, you know, to Greg Antonacci, that got me to television, that got me to uh, uh, Laverne and Shirley. And then from that particular point, I was part of the Paramount team until I hit all the, the TGIF shows, which was a... That was so many years of my life. I think that Miller Boyette produced for me 17 years of employment through their various shows. Now, 17 years. So it was a good gig. Now, what was it like? Uh, did you, I mean, you've worked with so many great talent, so much great talent. Did you know that Tom Hanks would be, and did you just have that feeling that he would just become this Oscar winner? Because you're directing him in a, in a, in a, a, a but they're dressing up like women. It's buzz. That's right. They're yeah. dressing up as women. No, I had no idea of that. The only actor that I had worked with that I thought was a breakthrough was Robin Williams in Mork and Mindy. Because this guy's t- talent's pool was so thick and so strange and so different and so fast that I thought he might find a way to hook on. What I thought about Tom at the time, he was 21 years old, and I thought to myself, that he had a great sense of self, that 21, with no real credits to his name, he really knew what he did, and he knew what he did well, and he did it. And I was totally amazed by that, but no, Tom and I never thought, that. matter of fact, Tom thought that when Bosom Buddy was over, his career was over. He was despondent for a long time before he realized that some people actually thought he was worth something, gave him a few more jobs, and Bosom Buddies led led to a special episode of um, of uh, Happy Days, where Tom, they wanted Tom, Henry specifically, Mr. Winkler wanted Tom to play this uh, this character that was anti the Fonz. He thought that would be terrific. And they offered Tom the role, and Tom's managers turned it down. So I'm having breakfast one morning with Bobby Hoffman, who's casting director for all of the, uh, the, the, the Gary Marshall product. And basically, he said to me how disappointed he was that he, uh, he they lost Tom Hanks. They really wanted him for this role. So I said, that seems strange. Let me give Tom a call. So I give Tom a call. I said, Tom, are you aware that you turned down an episode of Happy Days that, uh, that basically Henry Winkler specifically asked you to do it? Tom had never heard about it. At that time, he was with, I'm not sure who he's with, and I don't care if disparaging him or not, but he was with somebody who basically didn't want him doing TV anymore. They were looking to direct him towards features, okay? So basically, he took it. He went in, he took the job, went in there, met Lowell Gans, met Babalu Mandel, met Ron Howard, and got Splash. So it shows you sometimes that you got to just 
go with it. You got to take the flow and go with it. And so enough. So therefore, Tom wound up uh, with Splash and then built himself a modest film career. Um, <laughs> and uh, that's how that worked out. But once again, it was through connections, through that, that strange thing. If I don't have breakfast with Bobby Hoffman, if I don't call Tom, Tom doesn't do Happy Days and he doesn't get Splash. He doesn't begin his movie career yet. Now, in your career, you know, you've directed TV shows where you do a bunch of episodes. I mean, you know, you talk about, you know, Perfect Strangers, stuff like that. Do they do they sign you up for that? Do they say you're going to be the director or do they have you do the pilot and then you try to figure out where you want to go with it? Now, usually if you got hired for a pilot, the chances are that if you're available to do the series, they want you to do the series because they're, they're picking the best person that they think possible for the pilot. And uh, as it turned out, uh, that's what happened. But usually what happened in those days, because it's changed considerably, in those days, you needed a director who was uh, on the side of the producers and you needed somebody that stabilized the set. So you had one. I would do all episodes of a given season. If Laverne and Shirley did uh, 22 episodes, I would do 22. Occasionally, they throw one to Penny. They throw one to an executive producer. But for the most part, other than the gift shows, I was doing every single show. Same thing. I did for Full House. I did 198 episodes of Full House, 99 episodes of Perfect Strangers. And that's... That's, that's like four years, four seasons of 22, 24, 26 episodes. Then as the business changed and monitors came in and producers could see pictures on a screen that represented the shots that the director was looking at. They could then input and say, mm, I think I'd rather have that in a two shot. I'd rather have that in a close up. I'd rather have that looser. I'd rather have that tighter, which would drive you completely the distraction as a director but you you had to learn to live with that that little bit of shame and basically listen to their input and take it to heart and then basically i'm trying to think where i was going with this uh then what happened was they realized as they got better and better at seeing monitors that basically their control wanted to be in the hands of the producers and out of the hands of the director so they started to offer directors not full seasons they started to offer the directors three episodes here then three episodes there so that basically if they were unhappy with what you did they could get rid of you because at that time you were basically guest directing more than it being your series because i think the last of my series i'm trying to think what it could have been could have been hanging with mr cooper could have been uh step by step one of those uh, after that once miller boy yet left the business uh all of a sudden uh, I was up there with a very high salary and had worked for nobody else in the business. And all of a sudden, I'm out in the marketplace. Uh, now, uh, reduction of salary wasn't a big problem, but the fact was people heard of me, they knew my reputation, so they were willing to take a chance, but they were willing to take a three-episode chance to find out if indeed that could work out. And in some places, it did work out. If the producer and I had a past here history, we could figure out a way to make it work. So I took over the show for them and they didn't have the problem of worrying about the stage and the discipline and the staging of scenes and how to shoot it. So that kind of how it evolved towards the end of the career. Now, in your career, you know, you, you've directed in the early days, you directed, as you said, uh, Full House, you directed Webster, episodes of Webster. <laughs> what was it like 
well, especially for Webster, directing the kid where the kid's the star. You're used to, you know, Laverne and Shirley with the, even the Carmine Ragusa would pop and you know, all these That's people. right. What? No, the, what do I think about that? I think that uh, for, for the most part, kids are honest. They are kids. And if you're not trying to change the kid into something, uh, Emmanuel Lewis came to us with a skill set that was already in place. He was really cute. He knew all his lines. He knew all his staging. He was a little professional. Remember, you, th- you see Emmanuel Lewis, who looked like he was two and a half. He was 12. And one of the big problems we had on set was we had to stop picking him up and stop hugging him like he was a three-year-old because that was initially the instinct of, oh, Emmanuel. <laughs> that had to get stopped. But essentially, the problem with Webster was much more interesting than that. Alex Karras and Susan Clark, husband and wife, and their, um, their, their production company, they wanted to do a series that they sold to ABC called uh, Another Ball Game. It was supposed to be a story about Alex Karras finishing playing football, now doing Monday Night Football, during that, replicating that period of his life when he was announcer on Monday Night Football. And that was the show. Now, that was always about until all of a sudden, the network saw this little kid on TV in a commercial, and they said, wait a second, why don't we bring Emmanuel Lewis in? He can have, he could be a, a guardian or a, a replacement parent for some ball player that was on his team, and they would raise him. So then it moved from another ball game to And Then Came You which is the title song for the show, by the way. They kept the title song, and then came you. At this point, Alex and Susan were starting to get really nutso about this because they had no control when eventually they changed the show to Webster. It was now the name of the kid, and it was no longer their show, except they were going to be the parents of Webster. And we had a lot of Sturm und Drang on that set concerning the fact that so much power base and so much had been pulled away from Alex especially in the manipulation to make it Webster. Uh, And they were not necessarily uh, nice to Emmanuel. Uh, Alex was always kind of nice, but then again, we think that he was brain damaged from football. And we know that he was smoking so much dope in the back that we couldn't let any of the kids go near his trailer for fear they would get contact highs. But essentially, he was was just a pleasant guy, Uh, not very... uh, quick-minded, which may, I even said that once to Susan, I said, he's awful slow-minded. She, she said, "Yeah, oh yeah, I'm afraid all America can see that too, because she knew at that particular point that 13 years of banging your head into people's bodies was going to cause a little bit of damage, and it did, and eventually Alex passed away with dementia because of the uh, problem of the, uh, the, the, the hitting his head too much against hard objects. But uh, Susan was not happy. She's a controlling lady and a really good actress. And basically, she was the one who was most pissed off about the fact that it, it all became about Emmanuel. Now, you know, so that, now I was going to say, you know, we talk, we talk about your career in the Perfect Strangers. You know, you've, you've, you've directed some great, great characters. When you'd said, you know, Larry, it was Larry and Balky, Larry is the straight man. That's right. What is it? What is it like when you have to direct that? Does this? Does a straight man instinctually know that they are the straight man, or sometimes do they want to vocalize? Because it must be hard when Balky is stealing the show and they don't notice. Like I always say, if you watch Frasier, David High Pierce is such an amazing physical actor. Oh, amazing! He just, yes, correct. The look and the just the thing, and it makes mm-hmm. it perfect. But he even has some great lines. What was it like when you direct a, such a? There's such a 
different. I mean, Balk is so uh, over the they, top. What they would tend to do, which was very smart of them, they had a number of shows during the course of every season that featured uh, Mark's character. Because Mark was a pretty antic actor himself. It's just that compared to Balky. There's not many people who can compare to Balky in terms of off the charts. But Mark had phenomenal... Perhaps if I was to tell you the most skilled actor I ever worked with, it would be Mark Lynn Baker. It would not be Tom Hanks. It wouldn't be Robin Williams. These are newcomers to the business, essentially. But Mark Lynn Baker had come off of uh, another year or something, uh, the one that Sid Caesar show with Joe Bologna. Oh, goodness gracious. But anyway, this kid, this guy was not a kid at the time, but he could really act. He understood the name of the game. He really did. And it never concerned him whatsoever about the fact that he had to be straight man to Balky when Balky was simply ripping off and going places and Mark had to just be there. I used to use the image when, so when Balky does a quadruple spin, a backflip and a handstand leading into a backbend and standing up straight. He always knew that Mark Lynn Baker would be right there staring at him. Now, it's, and you know, it's so funny because you go from that and then in, on, on Full House, you all of a sudden you direct a bunch of kids. I mean, <laughs> how, how, how do you sit there? It's like, I always think of the old, the old term, you know, when people say try to wrangle kittens, you know, trying to wrangle kittens. What is, is that what it's like directing a bunch of kids? No, the only big problem with bunching with, with directing a bunch of kids is that their time is so limited to what they're allowed to do, how much time they can put on the set, depending upon age. I had I had Mary Kate and Ashley Olsen when they were six months old. They were allowed twenty seconds of film time before they uh, they had to be taken off the set. That's why we cast twins so that you could move one into the other. But the kids had limited hours. They had to go to school. They did not show up on the set until after lunch at 1 o'clock. And some of them had enormous chops. To my knowledge, and I still believe it, Candace Cameron might have been the best actor we had on on, on that particular show. Saget was a stand-up comic, as was Dave Coulier. Uh, Stamos had done a soap opera before playing Blackie, I think, before he got... Uh, Full House, and he was he was solid, but the jokes about Stamos was he wasn't a real good script follower. Uh, they used to have a, a board up in the writer's room. On one side of the board, they had the line as written. See you guys, I'm going to get some coffee. Then on the other side, they would put the line as John Stamos delivered it. And it would come out, well, guys, I was thinking, I don't know what I should do. It's a, it's a nice day. I don't feel like staying around the house. So maybe I should go. <laughs> they had these things listed side by side because John was a schmoozer. He was a schmoozer and a sweetest guy going. But so that was, but the kids, I always thought of everybody who I was working with as my equal and as my peer. I uh, thought of Jody Sweeten at four years old as my peer, Candace Cameron, all those people as my peers, and I just dealt with them honestly. I was amazed that the kids, Jody Sweeten at age four could sit at a table reading with the rest of the group and read the script cold as well as they could. She was that sharp and that smart. And Candace Cameron was a very good actor. And of course, the twins, they were mouthing for two years, uh, the, the, the dialogue coach, you would say the line, and then they'd say the line, and I had to find a way to shoot it so that I could create some sense of continuity so you didn't always feel like uh, these kids were off in a room by themselves recording their lines. But uh, I was, I thought kids were... I had, ah, the key to it all was I had kids the same age. My kids grew up. When I did a, a scene 
in the classroom with Jody Sweeten, my son Jamie, and my daughter Hillary, who were the same, more or less ages as Jody Sweeten, were in that classroom. And Hillary, who was the better actor of the group, she was, and Jody always knew that her seat in that classroom was going to be next to Hillary. Because I knew that Hillary, as a standard, would give me faces, would give me attitude, <laughs> all kinds of things. As a matter of fact, Hillary now is an executive up at Netflix, doing their, some of their programming for their comedies. So uh, she stuck with the business quite well. Jamie is an actor, but uh, it, I tried so hard to dissuade him. Boy, when people <laughs> want to be actors, oh, it's so painful. But at any rate, um, yeah. Um, so I was raising kids at the same time. It was a show my kids could appreciate, my kids could be a part of, and my kids could watch. So this became a no-brainer. And since I was raising kids, raising a few more on the set weren't a big problem to me. I had dialogue coaches. I had people from welfare. I had all kinds of people watching these kids to make sure they, they were in school and not running around the set. Now, you know, you talked earlier about how Webster became... The somewhat the star of that series. You also directed Family Matters. I think Urkel. <laughs> Urkel. Urkel. Now, what, what is that like when all of a sudden, I mean, Urkel had a life of his own. People watch the show, but if you said, who stars in the show? Everyone would go, Urkel. What was it yeah. like that? Was there, was there attitude or egos that, you, that people really don't see or some resentment maybe? There was a little bit of resentment at the beginning because once again, Reginald Vell Johnson and uh, uh, Joe Marie who had been both members of the Perfect Strangers cast. She was the elevator operator at the, at, the, at the newspaper, and he was a cop. Same cop that he played in Family Matters. And that was a show that was supposed to be about them. And once again, seventh epi- eighth episode in, S- Steve Urkel shows up. And he stands at the door and goes, Hello, uh, is Lara here? And at that particular point, we all knew he was going to become a regular. It took that much time to realize, oh, my heavens, did we hit gold with this kid. And uh, Jaleel, exceptionally bright, exceptionally well-behaved, his father a dentist. His, he, they made him go to school. He finished UCLA. There was no fooling around. He was not going to have a career. They were going to pull him from family matters if he did not pay attention to his studies. So for the most part, he was very well-behaved and a very good actor. At a, at a period of time, he got a little bored with playing Steve Urkel. He was getting a little old and feeling just a little stupid. When all of a sudden they said, okay, how about this? Would you like to play this character? We'll create a character for Steve Urkel, which will be his cousin, Myrtle Urkel, where you could play Myrtle Urkel and have a crush on somebody in the house and just be such a sassy southerner that it was just... So he loved that. He played his Myrtle Urkel. And then after a few seasons of Myrtle Urkel with with uh, with, with Steve Urkel, then showed up Stefan Urkel. Because at that point, Family Matters was was jumping the shark, the great Henry Winkler moment of jumping the shark, and they decided that time travel was certainly a, a positive story to talk about. But <laughs> So anyway, they had this machine which transformed uh, Steve Urkel into Stefan, the gorgeous, good-looking, suave guy who all the women were in love with. So it kept Steve, uh, it kept him uh, pretty happy for the eight-year run on that show. Remarkable run it had for uh, for that time and period. Now, but, uh, yeah. you're, you're directing TV. When do you decide to switch to movies? Because there was a part in your career where you did Big Fat Greek Wedding. Was it something that you were just tired of doing TV, tired if the system changed, or what happened? 
two things were happening. My first movie I did was called uh, Second Sight, where Bronson Pinchot was starring with John Larroquette. And somehow they had a director that dropped out on them. So Bronson suggested to them that since I've been directing uh, for him Perfect Strangers, maybe I could direct Second Sight. So that was the first movie, but it was just a question of a connection. Bronson said, direct it. I did it. We directed it. End of story. But the fact is that uh, it was, it, it was, I got to a point in my career, this is an interesting story. I got to a point in my career when the Miller Boy years were over, and I was watching what I considered to be a steep slope downwards of my career. You know, two episodes here, three episodes there, two episodes here. And I, I basically thought, I better get out of TV. It's just time to get out of TV. Uh, so I had a script. Somebody wrote a script. And I sent it off to Tom. I said, Tom, t- read the script for me. Tell me what you think. So he read it and he said, it's a very funny script. And he actually got, went out of his way and gave me specific notes. God bless the man. And then he said, well, what is this all about? And I said, Tom, I'm getting out of TV. I think that maybe independent features might have a cachet for comic directors. And he said, oh, my heavens, I have a script I want you to direct. And he sent me the script to my big fat Greek wedding. It came back easily. It was like, what? And basically had all the meetings, met with Nia. We, we, we concluded how the thing was going to have to be operated because it's tricky to operate with a person who wrote the script and stars in the script. But Tom was very, uh, very insistent that we were going to be the team and that was how it's going to have to be done. And uh, we went off and did it. And uh, we spent, ooh, I don't know, maybe six, eight months Working on the script, it was too long. It needed to be tightened. We did a number of readings. You know, uh, we connected to the the Greek, Australian, and American community since a number of the the key characters in my big fat Greek wedding happened to be Aussie actors. Um, but uh, but essentially, we just got in and did it. You know, we got a chance to cast it, protected by Tom Hanks. you got to remember, this was a $5 million budget, and he had already made a deal with HBO that they were going to put up half the money, and they were going to get the television uh, and rights to it. And then he made a deal with Gold Circle that they were going to get the distribution rights to it for America, for Canada, for Europe, for all that. And each of them put in $2.5 million. So I remember we did a reading of it for HBO. And uh, at the, I was simply waiting for the notes from HBO in order to continue my work with Nia. And uh, so I, so Tom calls one day and says, how's the rewrite coming? And I said, Tom, I'm not doing any rewrites yet. I'm still waiting for the notes from HBO. And Tom said, oh, there's no notes coming from HBO. I told HBO that for $2.5 million, they ain't getting no input. Now, that, that he and his team would be in control of... Uh, the project, and that's exactly what happened. So therefore, the, all the casting was totally in the hands of uh, Nia, myself, and Steve Serration, who was the active producer, who now still works for Playtone, on that project. Tom would show up every once in a while to give me, you know, his two cents of input, you know. He, all he kept saying to me was, remember how we worked on Bosom Buddies? And I'd say, <laughs> I do. And he'd say, we got to do the same thing on this. And I said, Tom, it's the only way I know how to work. You know, let the actors breathe, let them live, let them find, you know. I'm not interested in giving actors line readings. My goodness gracious, I never give a line reading in my life. You know, I, I force the actors' own sense of who they were and what they brought to the role to become the role. And that was it. So we got control over Greek Wedding in a way that you normally wouldn't in terms of, uh, of getting that show to be, to movie to be made. And John Corbett was the last piece 
we had we were about we were up in Toronto about to start principal photography in four days and I had no one to play that role and basically New, California was sending me tapes of people and I saw one guy that I thought well if I'm in trouble I'll have to do it and then that night we all went to a bar to drink and think how much trouble we're in and we hear some some guy talking at the other table with a bunch of his friends and it was John Corbett he was there with the cast and crew of Serendipity which he was shooting up in Canada at the time and he was laughing at the table about this script he had just received called My Big Fat Greek Wedding. But he couldn't do it because he was doing serendipity. So we went over to the table and we said, ooh, ooh, ooh. And I said, if I can work out something with the producers of serendipity, I will create a schedule where you can do both shows. And that's the reason why Corbett had long hair. In uh, It turned out to be a boon for us, but he had long hair in, 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 uh, in that movie and in, you know, in uh, the, my big fat Greek wedding, because that was the hair he had to have to finish out his shoot on Serendipity, which he had about four more days to shoot, and I just worked the schedule to to keep him out of the shooting until such time as uh, I needed him. Now, you 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 know, you've said you've always not made actors read lines. You come in. Is it was it tougher though to make a little bit of a transition from when you're used to twenty two minutes to now? It's more than twenty two minutes. It's more than a live audience. There's no live audience in front of you, so comedy's now, that's different. That's true. That's true. However, what I found out was that uh, no, learning coverage from sitcoms, what what shots you need to make a scene. Does it need to be a close-up? Does it need to be a looser shot? Should it be a two-shot? Is the comedy played in a two-shot? What is the... you know? I, but I texted to Jeffrey Jure, who did my DP work on that particular movie. I said, Jeffrey, if this movie looks like what I have in my head, you have failed me. I said, you better be testing me and competing with me and telling me that you have a better shot and a better plan. And he did that and that worked terrifically for us. But basically for me, when you cast an actor, you are casting an actor. And that, that actor will have to bond himself, who he is, his idiosyncrasies, his nervousness with the character. And that's going to become what that character is about. You know, this is not classical acting. You're not going out there and playing uh, Lear. You're not going playing Romeo and Juliet. You're playing written for the individual actor who is playing the role. You know, and we would cast it as honestly as we could. But it was the actor's humanity that we fe featured in the, in, the, in the show. And that's why people thought that cast was so brilliant, because I'd left them alone. Now, you know, I... No, I was going to say, you, you left them alone, you, and you had more control. Now, you do two movies after that, which I'm sure you didn't really have control. Because, I mean, did you have control of, you know, Fat Albert or Elvis left the building? Or was that something that you took for, you know, because you wanted to get into a bigger budget? or? Well, uh, uh, Elvis has left the building turned out to be uh, an independent feature and as such it was controlled independently and therefore whatever the controls were on uh, that particular movie uh, were the controls you know on Elvis has left the building I know that Kim Basinger who played the lead she begged me for two things she desperately was a major fan of designing women and was hoping for hell I could get Annie Potts to play her friend and since Annie and I 
Uh, Annie was in the first show I ever directed. We were friends. I got Annie to join in, and then Kim said, oh, my God, can you get me John Corbett? Can you get me John Corbett? So I got John Corbett. John Corbett nearly lost his agents because I called up John. I said, John, I got this movie I'm making with Kim Bassinger, and she really wants you for the male lead. And he said, I'm there. Well, at that particular point, all the negotiations went out the window. His agent had no power whatsoever. His client had already told them, I'm doing the movie. <laughs> but So that's how that built up. So it became, a, it became a family event. And as far as Fat Albert was, I was not the first director to be brought in for Fat Albert. The first actor who bloody won an Academy Award to play Idi Amin in the movies uh, why am I blanking on his name? A uh, 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 really good actor. Uh, but anyway, uh, he um, he had it, and he was basically one week away from photography. And Bill Cosby pulled the plug. Cosby had the right to pull the plug. He didn't like what he was doing because he was going to try to modernize Fat Albert into whatever the current state of affairs were in America at that particular time. And what Cosby didn't want that. He wanted somebody who could replicate the feeling, the neighborhood feeling and the magic of kids on a street corner creating their own world, you know. So uh, I got brought up to Cosby to meet him about that. And Bill liked the idea of a sitcom director. He thought that's exactly what I need. I need somebody who basically lets actors do their thing and who really knows how to shoot and understand story, he thought that I was a great choice. So I got into Fat Albert. And the only, there was a lot of pieces already that were constructed that were in cast that I kept. I had to change Fat Albert, and that's when I got up, came up with Keenan, which I thought turned out to be a terrific choice for me. But other than that, uh, most every, a lot of the other people in the cast were already players that were going to be part of it, and I kept them all. I only, I only got rid of the poor guy who was playing Fat Albert because... I didn't buy him. I just didn't know. His humanity was not striking me as anything that uh, could be manipulated into this wonderful character, Fat Albert. But Kenan Thompson, he just he said three lines, you know, and I knew that that was the guy. Because you don't question an actor's craft, not at this level of auditioning. Uh, you don't craft. It's not a question of that. It's just a question of the actor needs time to grow into a role, to find what's similar to him in the role and how he can play it. But uh, Keenan did a great job for me. And uh, so that was basically it. So I took 10 years. I took 10 years out of my television career to do some features. And it was the three features. It went from Greek Wedding to Elvis to Fat Albert. Then uh, after Greek Wedding, I started to get uh, a lot of interest from Hollywood. They didn't know quite what to do with me. But they determined, oh, well, maybe he can direct women. So they would send me really strange scripts, uh, and for the most part, I turned them down. And uh, you can only turn down Hollywood a few times, and then Hollywood decides, well, he don't want to play our game, so we won't go to him anymore. So basically, uh, that was it. And my daughter Hillary, the aforementioned Hillary, who sat next to Jody Sweet in classes at, uh, at uh, you know, Full House, she now was at uh, Disney working as a... Uh, working current comedy for Disney. And and I went up one day to take her to lunch. I took her to lunch. When, I got, when she got back from lunch, her boss at that time called her in and said, Hillary, you didn't tell me your father was Joel Swick. Do you think you can get your dad to direct some shows for us? 
So Hillary gives me a call, says, Dad, they're interested in thinking about whether you'd like to direct some shows for the Disney Network. And all I said to Hillary was, is it going to help your career? And she said, I think it might. I said, then you tell them that I will direct anything that you tell me to direct. And essentially, that was it. I then did uh, seven years on, on, on Disney shows, everything from uh, Sweet Life on Deck to, to Shake It Up to, uh, you know, uh, the, the, the Zendaya piece that she did uh, all through those years, you know, uh, and had a wonderful time working with, uh, with teenagers-ish kind of characters and had a good time with that whole thing until eventually I just aged out. It was time for other people is really the truth. It came to the end and I said to myself, I am in the way of young African-American directors, of women of all these people who have been keep who have been keeping out of the business for too many years, and I said, "I'm getting out. I, I will. I will basically oversee some things." And I did, and I had some uh, a number of a good number of African American directors who worked under me as ads and what have you wound up with decent careers happening for themselves. And the same with women, who I basically nurtured through a lot of the process as I was getting myself out of it. And uh, I'm out of it now for two years and. I'm out of it. I can't imagine there'd be a reason. It would have to be a very close friend with a very strong need to want me to direct a situation comedy again. But don't you uh, don't you miss it? I mean, it's been you know you've been doing after 650 episodes. It's hard to say you miss anything. Uh, I miss the. Uh, well, we can't miss anything right now because there's nothing going on. So, in a sense, I lucked out. I pulled out just at a time where there's no work anyway. But essentially, uh, I, I, it's the energy necessary, the discipline necessary, the hours necessary, whatever that's all about. Even though you have a system and the system is oiled as well as you can oil it, it takes a lot. It takes toll. And when you get to a certain age, as you're right, I'm 78 now, and I basically decided at about 75 and a half, it was time to say goodbye, make room for other people, you know. And so I did. Uh, I, like I said, if somebody showed up with a terrific script, I might do the pilot. But here again, I don't think I did the series. I would let them know if you wanted me to do a pilot for you, I can get it up for a pilot and do some good work for you. But uh, <laughs> I don't want to start churning these out again. Now, I saw you directed a pair of kings. I know Gino uh, Seeger, who uh, was the big guy. I met him one night, and he came to us. Oh, Gino! Gino, the voice! He has the (laughs) deepest voice. He did my show years ago, and he's such a big guy. My wife, I just got married, but I've been with my wife for a while. My wife is like 5'3", 100 pounds. I think Gino's Gino's girlfriend was like 5'1". And I remember Gino came to our Super Super Bowl party, and it just looks so funny when he stood next to him. We got a picture because he's so big, and then you hear that voice, and you think he's got to be he's got to be messing with me. No, the truth is, and I, he was a hell of a good actor, and he still shows up now. I think he's in something else, something streaming, something like that, because oh, he does commercials, but he's a presence, and he was a big presence on that set. Let me tell you, he was something else. He was something else, but I liked him. And I liked that show. I liked the kids on that show a lot. Now, now, would you ever write a book? Have you written a book? Would you? Could... I have. I have written a book called "Directing the Sitcom" with uh, my AD at the time, Rosario Rovetta, and uh, we wrote it together. And it's been out in the market for about three, four years now. I don't know. And but it I mean, gets around. I mean, your stories, because you have so many good stories. You've worked. I have with... a lot of stories. 
you've worked with everybody. So I, I guess, I mean, it's something that people would love that because people love that, especially my my generation. I mean, all those shows when you talk about Laverne and Shirley and Bosom Buddies. <laughs> and, just, and you grew up with them. And then going into Full House, you know, we all had like the John Stamos and Dave Coulier hair when I of had that. Of course, yeah, of course, of <laughs> course. No, uh, it's about half the book is anecdotes and half the book is uh, how one actually goes about directing a sitcom. How this, the system works. What you do in the five days, what you do in the first day, second day, third day, what camera blocking is all about, what pre-shooting is all about, all those things are taken into account in the book in terms of, uh, theoretically, although I don't know this for sure, somebody who, who could really read and understand the book would be ready to direct a sitcom. I have, I have one final question for you, because sure. you know the industry has changed a lot. You know, mm-hmm. with I talked to a lot of actors who, you know, back in the day, you had to... You had to nail it, or so you had to go through footage of film and film and film. And now it's where it's more digital, where they can stop it and reshoot it. Do you think that makes an actor get lazier and not develop the chops as much because they know they have a safety outlet, or do you think actors are still just the same? I think actors are the same. I think the system is what breaks it down. If you are going to perform in front of an audience, which 90% of the sitcoms are done, that's one, the actor then is performing for an audience. If there's no audience, the actor is acting for each other. They're not acting for an audience. There's no laughs. There's no applause breaking up the scene. There's none of that going on. We may doctor in some applause, some uh, laughter later. But the actor is just purely in the moment dealing with the other actor. And it's a pure f- work for the actor, uh, not being uh, you know, out there being performing, which is what's happening now. I've got the, my friend Hershey Felder, who does all these one-man shows for me, Beethoven and Chopin and what have you. He's now shooting v- versions of each show. We're up to Gershwin now, and that comes out on September 13th. We're streaming Gershwin, and what we're doing now is we're taking what was a stage play that he played in front of an audience and making it into a filmed project where he plays for the camera. And the difference is all I can tell you is palatable. The difference in his work, he's not performing, he's just being the character. He's just telling the story. He's not trying to sensationalize the story or looking for applause by coming up with a big fancy ending to some piece of music. And it, so it does, it changes, but the difference is audience or no audience and not whether you're shooting uh, HD or, or film, although truly when with film, only person who you had the shot was the cameraman. And he'd have to tell you at the end of every scene, got it, got it, got it. Or one guy would say, missed it. And you go, uh-oh, and we go back and pick it up. But essentially, once we visually could see what the, what the cameraman was shooting, uh, he, once you have no audience, you're making a little movie. That was awesome. I want to thank you. I'm so glad we got to do this. Uh, Very good, yeah. People, you got to just go on the IMDb, look up Joel Zwick, and there's not, there, you know, there's two Zwicks in the business, which is very weird. And we met, you know, we met and we found out that we were not related, although I thought I had some Zwicks who moved to Chicago, which Ed is from. But we sat there. We met in Tom Hanks's office, as a matter of fact. Tom was talking to Ed Zwick about a project when he realized that I was next door editing Greek wedding, he called me to come over so he can get the two Zwicks in the room at the same time. All we said to each other was in the final analysis, we couldn't prove whether we were family or not. We said, please let us not screw up the name of Zwick. 
as we move forward in our careers. So people, that, was, that was our moment. Go to IMDb, check him out. Go see his work. Go watch the old sitcoms. Now you'll go, oh, wow, that's pretty cool. And uh, go to my website, coopertalk.net. You can find over 800 episodes. Email me, cooper, at coopertalk.net. Tell me who you want on the show. Also, my Twitter is at coopertalk. And um, Instagram at Cooper Talk One. So remember, I'm Steve Cooper. I'm only as hip as my guests. Don't forget, drink your water, eat your vegetables, take your vitamins, and I'll talk to you guys next time. Hey.